Father, you are the one that we praise. You are the one that we adore. And here we are on a Thursday evening in McLean, Virginia. And we are on our knees, in our weakness, seeking your grace and your truth. So Holy Spirit, breathe life into us. Breathe life into this text that might be familiar. Renew our hearts that we might be passionate for you so that we might demonstrate the love that you have shown us to a watching world. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I studied this passage this week, I was struck and I was dumbfounded about what to do with it, not because there wasn't anything in here, but because there was too much in here. How can I cover everything that is in this passage? We could take the time to contrast Judas and Peter, two disciples who lived with Jesus for three years, sharing meals, running away from mobs, being taught by Jesus. We could spend time looking at a master who is going to be betrayed by Judas and how he still loved him. We could look at the pride of Peter. We could look at the divinity of Jesus. We could ask what it means that Jesus loved even to the end and even his enemies. We could even look at how the Trinity glorifies one another. But our focus this evening is going to be on only two words. And these two words are these. The first one is now, and the second one is new. Look with me at verse 31. In verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. This struck me this week as I was studying, that right after Judas leaves to betray Him, Jesus says He is about to be glorified. It is striking because Jesus is claiming the single most important event in human history is about to happen. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested in the garden. He's going to go through the mockery of a trial. He will be beaten and he will be crucified on a cross. And Jesus is saying that in his humiliation, even to the point of death, He is about to be glorified. See also earlier in chapter 13 verse 1 that Jesus says, His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus says, Now is the time. Now is the time for the purpose for which I was born. Now, if you go back and you read the Gospel of John, John would build tension in his Gospel account. By story after story, Jesus would perform miracles, and then he would say, but the time has not yet come for Jesus. It's kind of like going on a trip, like my kids when we just recently drove to Alabama, that 11 hours, 11 and a half hours, how many times are we asked, are we there yet? How many more minutes? All throughout the Gospel of John, this tension is building. 
You see it at the wedding feast at Cana when Mary comes to Jesus and she says, the wine is all gone. And Jesus says to her, woman, term of endearment, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It continues in chapter 7 when Jesus is at a feast and there were some seeking to kill him and his friends beg him to leave Galilee. But Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. And then later Jesus is teaching in the temple and the people are amazed at his wisdom, at his authority, at the things that he knows about scripture and they want to kill him. But it says they could not because the hour had not yet come. And in John chapter 8, the woman is caught in adultery. And Jesus teaches that he is the light of the world. But no one could arrest him, the scriptures tell us, because his hour had not yet come. And so now John, in this moment, in John chapter 13, is saying, now is the time. Well, time for what? Well, if you've been here at McLean this week or you're familiar with Holy Week, you know that this is a busy week. You know that on the first day of this week, what is known as Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem and the crowds laid down branches of of palm trees and they shouted Hosanna. The population in the city of Jerusalem had swelled by at least six times because they were there to sacrifice a Passover lamb and to observe the feast. It was this day, it was this week, the next day on the Monday that Jesus goes in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He overturns the tables. He cracks the whip. And you can just feel the tension mounting. The city is crackling with expectation. And the Romans are worried with revolution. The confrontation between Jesus and religious leaders of the day is heightened. The Sanhedrin, they come and they question Jesus, trying to trap him, but they cannot. And then on this day, on this Thursday, Jesus goes to his disciples and says, go and secure an upper room, get a Paschal lamb so that we can observe the Passover together. And the disciples are thinking, now, now is the time. We've been laying low for three years. We've been waiting, waiting Jesus keeps telling us the hour has not yet come. But now we're in Jerusalem. Over 300,000 people are here. The conflict with the authorities is at its greatest moment. Surely this is the time that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of David. Surely this is the time that the borders of Israel once again are going to be enlarged. We know they were thinking this because even as they go to this upper room to celebrate the Passover, what are they arguing about? They are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus. Who's going to sit on his right and who's going to sit on his left. But Jesus knows the hour that is coming is so much different than what they expect. It's so much better He is about to do more on a cross in Calvary than David and Solomon and all the kings of Israel ever did combined. He is about to secure their salvation and redeem their souls from the pit of hell. 
He is going to establish a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away that will never run out. Jesus, in this moment, in this hour, is about to crush the head of the serpent. He is about to be torn in two for Adam and his posterity failing to keep the covenant. Jesus knows that his hour is coming when the promise to Abraham to be a father of great nations is about to be secured. The sacrificial substitute for Isaac is about to be provided. The greater son of Israel is coming out of Egypt. A treasured possession is going to be finalized. Life-giving water is about to flow from the rock. The great high priest is about to offer his body. The scapegoat is about to be sent into the wilderness. The lamb is about to be led to the slaughter. The sheep to his shearer. The bronze serpent is going to be lifted up. The ultimate day of atonement at Calvary has come. The city of refuge is going to be constructed. The curse for every disobedience is about to be absorbed. The temple is about to be destroyed. The remnant of Babylon is about to be led to the Holy Land. The great shepherd is about to lay down his life for his sheep. The greater son of David is about to crush his enemies. The rose of Sharon is about to bloom. The merciful husband is about to take back his adulterous wife. Jesus is on the verge of being wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and opening up the prison to those who are bound. He is about to be the balm of Gilead for every wound, to drink the cup of wrath until no drop is left. It is the exile to end all exiles, the famine to end all famines, the darkness to end all darkness, the death that will end all death. The floodgates of God's mercy is about to flow like mighty rivers. God's justice and mercy, His perfect love, is about to kiss on the cross in this particular moment in history like no other. The hour has come for the climax of human history, the focus of heaven, the apex of redemption, the pinnacle of love, The perfect sacrifice is at hand. The Son of Man glorified. And God is about to be glorified in the Son. Everything in the Old Testament, everything that has ever happened in history is leading up to this moment. And Jesus says, the hour has come. What would you be doing in that moment? What is Jesus doing in that moment? He's ministering to his disciples. He's ministering to his friends. And he gives them some of his final words. What are these final words? Look with me at verse 34. And we'll now focus on the word new. Jesus gives them what he calls his new commandment. He says, love one another. If I'm the disciples, I have to think, Jesus, what is new about this commandment? We know that we're supposed to love you. We know that you taught this to our forefathers in Leviticus 19 that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
We know that just a couple of days ago, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and tried to trap you by their questions and asked you, what is the greatest commandment? We know that you said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus, how is this a new commandment? Did you forget the sermon that you preached last week? It happens. I met with James this week and I told him, I said, I went back and I listened to your Monday, Thursday sermon last, this week. It was so good. He's like, what did I preach on? (laughs) Jesus didn't forget what he taught. He didn't forget the words from Leviticus 19. He didn't forget the greatest commandment. So what is different? What is new about this commandment? The newness is this. Jesus provides a greater why, a greater motivation, a greater illustration when he says not just to love your neighbor as yourself, but pay attention, but now you are to love your neighbor as Jesus has loved you. And surely this is referencing the entire life of Jesus and the way that he loved the creation. But I think it's specifically pointing to this example of washing his disciples' Feet. This is the ethic. This is the standard. This is the command that those of you in this room are to look around. And what Jesus calls us to do as McLean Presbyterian Church and friends is to love one another as Jesus has loved us. It's amazing. Look at verses 1 through 17. I won't take time to belabor all the things that you know about foot washing. But you know what it means, right? You know that the roads in Palestine were unpaved. You know that they wore sandals. And so you know that as they walked down the road, their feet got dusty. And when it rained, their feet got muddy. And that mud was mixed with manure and it was gross. And it was that custom in that day that as you went to someone's house, there would be jars of water. And as you walked into the house, the homeowner or the host, their responsibility was to see that your feet were washed, that your sandals were removed before you came into the home. And this was the lowliest of tasks. It was so menial. It was so degrading. It was the work of slaves. And you know, Jewish slaves were not even permitted to perform this task. Only Gentile slaves were permitted to wash the feet of others. And so the disciples enter the room. And we are told that in other gospel accounts, they are arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And no one even thinks to perform the task to wash one another's feet They are so consumed with their argument, saturated in the world's understanding of power and greatness, and resolute in their stance that they should not be the one to wash each other's feet. And so the meal begins. And what happens in verse 4? We are told that Jesus rose from supper, he took off his outer garments. He tied a towel about his waist and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. Don't miss this moment. 
the creator of the universe is washing the feet of the creation. Don't miss that Jesus is the Lord of the universe of John chapter 1 and He is on His knees and His hands scrubbing dirt and grime from the toes of His disciples. Who writes this? Who comes up with this? No other God in human history, no other founder of any major world religion stoops so low to wash the feet of His disciples. And Jesus comes to Simon Peter, and like we all would have, Simon Peter protests, What are you doing? You're my Lord. You're my Master. I've seen you calm the waves. I've seen you bring back the dead to life. I've seen you make the lame walk, the blind to see. You are my master, my teacher. You will not wash my feet. And Peter once again is wrong. (laughs) And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter, of course, swings to the opposite side of the pendulum. Well, if I need to be washed, then wash my hand and my face, everything. I'll take the full spa package. Give me the deluxe. Wash everything. And poor Peter, poor us, he misunderstands Jesus because Jesus is talking about a spiritual truth. He's talking on a spiritual level and Peter can only grasp it on a physical level. It's like the picture in John chapter 4. Remember with the woman at the well when she comes to draw the water. Jesus comes to her and he says, Woman, I have water that if you drink you will never ever be thirsty again. And she thinks, that's a good idea. I don't like coming down here and having to draw water from the well. I'll take some of that water. In fact, I'll have two. And Jesus says, that's not the water that I'm talking about. It's the same thing with Peter. Peter misses the spiritual meaning. Jesus is not giving them a course on hygiene, but he is teaching them far, something far more significant. What is the significant truth that he is symbolizing? Jesus says, if you have bathed, you are clean. If you take a shower in the morning, then you don't need to bathe before dinner. The foot washing is a parable. It's a symbol about the true spiritual cleansing. Not from physical dirt, but from the dust of the serpent. It's not about water in a basin, but the blood of the cross. And without it, you've missed the point of the water, the basin, and the towel. We must understand the action of Jesus in the shadow of the cross. This is a parable pointing towards a deeper reality. The point of the water refers to cleansing. And that cleansing directs our attention to the supreme act of cleansing by which we are made clean in the sight of God. Not by water, but by the blood of Jesus on the cross by the atonement. That's how we are washed. So two points of application for us tonight. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we're really glad that you're here. We hope that you'll be a part of this community and you'll continue to explore the questions that you have. 
But let me give you something to consider tonight. You know, the pervasive idea in our culture is to reject the idea that we need cleansing. We are too confident in our own ability to fix and save ourselves. And it takes great humility to admit, especially in this town, that we need something and we don't have something that we need. Most of us, like me, we like to think that we have it all together, that we are independent and we can make it on our own. But do you know this? If you object to salvation by grace, if you're spending all your time trying to clean yourself up, to make yourself righteous, maybe to God or maybe just your friends or, or maybe just to the world to prove that you are enough, you're in the same boat, the same spot, the same place as Peter. You know, it sounds very humble, doesn't it, to say, Lord, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. I help this person out over there. I'm taking care of this person. Surely God will love me now. It sounds very humble, but it's actually very proud. Proud because you don't think you are that bad and you are not that dirty and you have the ability to clean up your own life. But as Jesus points out here, if you try to stand on your own, you can have no part in him. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot present ourselves before God. We need to allow Jesus to cleanse us. This is one of the marks of true conversion. Now let me talk to believers in the room. Believers in Jesus. He is making clear once an individual is cleansed by the shedding of his blood, by his grace, that we do not need to be bathed again and again. It's the reason why we no longer celebrate Passover while James and I and Robert and Ben and I don't have a lamb up here that we're sacrificing. There is no need for any more blood because the true Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We are justified once. But like Robert pointed out in his prayer of confessing, confession, we are in need of daily cleansing. Why? Because when believers become Christians, when they are washed for that first time, when they are justified before a holy God by the shedding of blood, we don't instantly become perfect. We still sin. I still sin. I'm barely out of bed before I sin. I need continual repentance so that my relationship with God is restored and is alive. It's simple to understand, right? It's like my own children. I have a relationship by their birth, by their new birth as Christians, by Graham and Hudson's and Deacons, by their their birth, they are my sons. And they are not perfect. We believe in total depravity in my household. (laughs) My little emperors. But you know what? When they do something wrong, the relationship doesn't change. They are still my sons. And I am still their father, but they might be distant from me because of their rebellion and their sin. And it is through their confession and their faith that they come again and again and that relationship is built. And it's the reason we as believers come to this table again and again. Because it's through this meal that we do in remembrance of him. Let me conclude by this and lead us to the table. 
the last thing that struck me in this passage is in verse 33. When Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, little children. You get that? He addresses his disciples, his friends, as little children. He is assuming tender affection for them like a father who is about to preside over the Passover meal. And he wants them to remember this night forever. I don't know how you mark Holy Week each year, how you try to have the grace be fresh in your soul. But one of the things that I do, I pick out one gospel and I try to read it over and over. And as you can tell, I read the Gospel of John over and over this week. And then I tried to read one devotional book that helps me. And the book that I read this year was The Hardest Peace. It's by Kara Tippett, a young woman, a pastor's wife in our denomination, who recently died from cancer on March 22nd at the age of 38. And it's a beautiful account of her fighting its brokenness with grace and peace. And at the end of the book, she has a letter for her husband and her four young children. And this is what she wrote prior to her death. She says, My dearest littles, oh, how I wish this letter were written to my grown children. How I yearn and pray for long days with each of you. Sometimes I see glimpses into what each of you are to become. But there is so much of your story not yet written. As any mama would desire, I want your story to be a beautiful story where each of you learns to lean into Jesus, love Jesus, know Jesus, understand that his nearness is your good. It is with this same heart affection that Jesus addresses his children, his disciples, giving them these dear words of affections. And when you get this, When you get this in the depths of your soul that Jesus loves you in the same way that this mother loves her children even deeper and wider and with with greater passion, when that gets into your soul, it changes you. And Jesus says when you experience that, you will love one another and you will love one another with cross love, with sacrificial love, with serving love, with kneeling love. And when you do that, the world will know that you are my disciples. Friends, if you struggle to love someone, it is because it's hard to love people. It really is. But the key to having the ability to love friends and enemies is to be loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us. Help me to love like this. We thank you for the blood that has washed away our sins. We thank you for this story that shows us how you loved your disciples and how you love us. Help us to grasp the significance of this evening, of the love displayed on Calvary, so that the way that we interact with one another would look so different, and the world would say, I want that. So Father, feed us in this meal tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.